Good evening, everyone. I am your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Thank you all for joining us. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please hit subscribe and don't forget to hit that notification bell so you are alerted whenever we go live. We're constantly adding cross streams with other channels and adding new shows. Speaking of new shows, I recorded our first episode of Pop Life. And by the time you see this, we'll have aired the second episode of Pop Life. It's a show where uh, I talk about more pop culture stuff. Uh, from the first episode, I sat down with singer of influential hardcore metalcore band 18 Visions, James Hart. Uh, there were some slight audio issues, but it was still a cool talk. And there's going to be much more. Uh, and I will be joined uh, most likely in the future with fellow musician and a frequent guest on this show, Pasquale Romero. So stay tuned and look out for that. Also, if you watch the show on YouTube, all of the other shows that we do on this channel, we actually have playlists for them. So Beyond the Red Zone, our sports show, there's a playlist for. Gaming Materialist with uh, Gene Bajan and Derek Barn, there's a playlist for. I believe there's even a playlist for Moving Addicts Extravaganza, which is no longer the channel, but they had a year's worth of very quality uh, leftist movie reviews with a variety of some amazing guests. Additionally, uh, if you like what we do here and you want to see it continue and you have the means to further support the channel, for our patrons, we have the exclusive Champagne Room. It is our post-show after-hours hang where we have more ridiculous, uncensored fun, usually watching some weird movies that gets the main show demonetized. Depending on the level of patronage, you can get exclusive TIR merch. At any level, you can join us for movie nights. And I keep talking about adding an extra fun movie night. But this month has been insane since one of our members here is getting married. And a lot of us will be taking off this week to the Great White North to join Deep State Cuba on uh, for his wedding. Speaking of weddings, I want to introduce super producer she is the faceless voice of reason on this show moderator extraordinaire m2 song hello hello i'm unsure why you would be saying my name after speaking of weddings oh no reason just a, okay just a segue my mom's heart just dropped. Okay. <laughs> just a little stroke. It's fine. Oh, your mom thought you were marrying Cuba? She, hey, she she is not picky at this point, I think. Did you tell your mom that we have a no race mixing policy here at TIA? <laughs> it's funny because I have beige kids. That's what makes it fun. That's funny. And uh, Jean Bajlan. Jean Bajlan is a race mixer. That's right. He is race mixed. He is himself uh, muddish, and his child, uh, children, are all kinds of uh, different. Different. Uh, but Jean gets mistaken for a Latin man at the Home Depot. Is that right? It's the ponytail. It's where he lives. Okay. Okay. And the ponytail. And the ponytail. Big fan of that. I'm going to see Gene, and he's probably going to punch me in the testicles. <laughs> in real life in like three days. <laughs> he He's doing, I can see him in the virtual green room, and he's just sitting there like, oh, I am going to get a good shot, too. <laughs> I got a wide foot here, Miles. <laughs> Let's bring in. Uh, our favorite history professor at Missouri State University, Mean Jean Bajlan. Hi, Jason. How are you doing? And I will say this. I'm not going to direct any violence towards you because I saw Hatchet Man, the man <laughs> with the hatchet in his bag. And he looked very much like you. He dressed like you. And he had a hatchet in his bag. So... You know, I know 
when to avoid. So, so me, Hatchet violence. So, MT, so we did a show. You weren't on the show Saturday, so we did a show Saturday. And uh, usually with Pascal on the show, I do a thing called trigger warning for those of you that are, are new to the show. And the trigger warning is just a way for me to anger Pascal. Um, but also bring about a bit of a conversational point before we bring in our guests. And there was no Pascal, and I, di I didn't think Gene was going to get angered by it. But I was watching this thing kind of before we went on air. I was with my son uh, this past weekend in, in Los Angeles, so I didn't I didn't uh, didn't sleep much. So I saw this thing on uh, I think Twitter, and it was a dude that somehow got into some altercation with some young people at a McDonald's. Um, I did I did show it to UMT. I showed it with the with us on the group chat. Speaking of oh, how yes. the group chat is, you know, that's really what it's for. It's for memes and silly videos. But uh, I I laughed for an hour. I laughed for I a straight hour watching it. Why? Well, he, Jason also gave us a, like a blow by blow account of the man's psychological state as he steadily got his actually said, look, you see, now he's got the axe out. Now he's giving the girl a talking to now. Now he's destroyed their mobile phone because he's tired and he's fed up and now he's going home. He's like, he's like when the when you punch a man that many times in the head and he's eating your punches. And he's going like this. Is that all you got? He's going you like this. Yeah. yeah. He's when he's like sitting this. there like this, and, and when he's making this pose, the Malcolm X thinking pose on you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you hit him with the chair like it's pro wrestling. Or you run. Or you run. It's not yeah. gonna. And then he, when he went to get in the back, MT, you are from New York. You've been, you, you're a native New Yorker. Yeah, I am. You see a fight in the McDonald's. Was it Delancey Street? Does that sound right? Shut up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when you see a man that's just got punched in the head 47 times <laughs> and stand there and go, is that, and stand there like this and go, is that all you got? And then he goes and reaches in his bag. Do you, A, uh, ask him what he's going to do? <laughs> B, stand around and wait to see what he pulls out of the bag? Or C, run your ass away. Well, since you said it's 47 times and that's a prime number, I would run. <laughs> I would, I would run. Or I'd move really far back and take out my camera and scream out World Star. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Depends on if I ate or not yet. <laughs> Might not want to run. When the man scares the kids and then punches the one kid and then gives the young lady a talking to about why she shouldn't hang out with people like this. He didn't this. punch him. He slapped him. <laughs> yeah. He slapped him over. He didn't he, he didn't even deign to give a to, to move his uh, hand into a fist shape. He just slapped him. That it was, it was huge. Like why would you even think why were they even starting on the bike messenger guy who's been in the gym all day? <laughs> I think, was it because of his shorts? His little shorts? I think it was because of the shorts. They saw the shorts, they saw the backpack, and they were like, you're not going to do it. You're not a scary black person. He was like, okay. Hungry. <laughs> he had his hatchet in the bag. He knew the terrain of battle very well. And he did. He, he did. He knew the terrain of battle. He knew all the exits. He knew everything. Uh, allegedly, Jean Bajlan is going to be cutting a clip of that conversation. Jean, myself, and Chris Catrone, uh, and me giving a breakdown <laughs> <laughs> of basically what not to do when uh, when you, you run into Jason's long lost twin. <laughs> mm, man, just, just don't don't try to fight people late night. I know everybody feels tough late night. Had a few drinks in them. They've uh, listened to some some music that got them all hyped up before they walked into the McDonald's. Probably new metal music. Oh. <laughs> Give me something to break. And they were like, yeah. And that dude was like, I'm about to break your ass. Cut my life into <laughs> Damn. <laughs> He that's, attempted to cut their lives in three 
That music just takes me back to wandering around aimlessly in the Spiders nightclub in Hull in the early 2000s. Wandering around aimlessly, not drunk, looking at drunk people. Okay, Gene, and just for us, for our own consumption, can you, can someone, I'm throwing it out there into the the universe of, of social media. Um, people love messaging me all kinds of stuff, good and bad stuff. Um, and there was that one time I did ask if someone could make the, uh, was it the Harriet Tubman Amex card? That, 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 you had to put that away, right? We had to put away the Harriet yeah, Tubman Amex. That was officially like, I think maybe we went too far. I don't think it'll be going too far if you put the Papa Roach last resort when the dude is, is smashing cell phones <laughs> and slapping people upside the head. If you do that, I and 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 uh, we will we will post it on whatever social media we have if we if you could send us. Maybe we should ask Quinn to do that. You think Quinn could do that? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm sure Quinn could do that. That that would be amazing. I'm sure you could do it, Jason. Let's ask Quinn to do that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and by Quinn, he means Quintern. <laughs> Quintern. The Quintern. Quintern. The intern. Quintern, the intern. <laughs> I love. The... <laughs> Are we ever gonna let him come on air? Yeah, we should let him come on air. He, he comes yeah. on air. He comes on Gaming Materialists. Oh, That's you put it. him on air on Gaming Materialists? Yeah, he's he's our back behind the scenes producer. I kind of wanted to do him like MT, where the, no one knows what Quinn looks like. Well, he, doesn't, his, he does not show his face. He just gives his voice. Quinn's oh, wow. smart. Quinn yeah. is smart. See, MT and Quinn can walk around the cities they live in respectively and not have anybody point at them and say, that show you had last week hated the thing that you said about the thing. Let's be honest. No one does that to us either. Nobody in Rosarito is going, is, is chasing if, you around. If anyone came to me in Rosarito and watched the show, I'd be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, no way. Want to come to my terrace? <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you guys at some point about how uh, picking up Catherine Lou got me stopped by the police when she came down here with her family. Oh, dear. Recently. Yeah, I got stopped by the police. Trying to That's a champagne room conversation. That is that a is. champagne room conversation, so we'll have to do that. But um, I do want to bring in our guests. This, this, but before we bring in our guests, there's still tickets available for the L.A. show. Give them a revolution. October 23rd, 6 p.m. Give them a a revolution. Give them an argument. Left Reckoning, Ben Burgess, Derek Varn, Matt Leck, David Griscom. Who else is going to be there? Daniel Bessner. Daniel Bessner is going to be there. Um, He's nursing his sciatica right now and doing some like Rocky Balboa level, Rocky IV training to get ready for the live show hey, at least Can't it's not wait. syphilis he's pounding uh meat right now as we speak <laughs> <laughs> the man is a professor no <laughs> <just> worry like, whatever <laughs> our guest just turned his like i can't do this <laughs> all of my reputation i was in the post damn it <laughs> well uh, it's kind of understood that the, la- the 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 last place where you hear the term fake news is with local uh, journalism. There's, we think there's not a lot of corporate in- interests influencing the reporting. But would you believe that behind garage sale listings and Rotary Club info is a hidden right wing agenda? Our guest today wrote uh, kind of a wonderful column. I'm, I'm really glad Gene brought this to my attention and, uh, and booked this show because it's actually kind of right in line with what I've been working on. And I want to read uh, a clip from the article Pink Slime Journalism. This is our guest from our guest. Ten years ago, I coined the term pink slime journalism to describe the sneaky way companies like Metric Media exploit Americans' lingering trust in local newspapers to peddle an inferior product. The term is a reference to the controversial paste-like meat byproduct that was, 
according to reports at the time, supposedly being added to ground beef on supermarket shelves without a label. If the yellow journalism of the 19th century can be defined by the sensationalistic, if it bleeds, it leads mentality, pink slime is the opposite. It wants to quietly smuggle low-quality pastel goo from a machine into your regular media diet. Faith in journalism in the age of, quote, fake news and algorithm-driven misinformation keeps dropping, but polls show that local news is still relatively well-regarded. According to a 2019 Knight Foundation survey, local outlets are more trusted than national organizations by a wide margin of 45 to 31%. It's probably because local news focuses on issues that tend to be nonpartisan. Weather, sports, obituaries, local elections, and the staff members are your neighbors and members of your community. Our guest, Ryan Zagraff, is a freelance writer and journalist who's been featured in the Washington Post, The Onion, The AV Club, and much, much more. Please welcome, coming all the way live from Hotlanta, Ryan Zagraff. Hey. Hey, guys. Hello. Welcome. Hello. Welcome. Thank you, Ryan, for for joining us today. Um, Thanks for having me. I I actually believe this is an extremely important topic uh, as my latest video essay is going to be covering the way in which we digest media. Um, So reading your your piece was like, oh, this is so right up my alley. (laughs) It's literally what I've been researching and and trying to put together uh, whole thing about uh i guess first off i want to know uh when do you think this co-optation of local news started and why are people so quiet about it i remember there was a bit of a fuss when the las vegas review was purchased by sheldon adelson uh you know the pro-israel casino magnet uh, and there's kind of more talk around stuff like jeff bezos owns the washington post but we don't really talk about uh the the death of uh of local journalism and smaller papers that between consolidation and and what you're reporting um it's actually kind of scary yeah well i mean as most people know like journalism local journalism has been dying for like the last 30 years but um it's just something that we're just used to experiencing and because it's a lot, you know, thousands of local outlets, when one falls, it's like, you know, if a tree falls in a forest, anyone hear it? Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, we're kind of reaching a critical point where there are major American cities that don't have local journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, to, to answer your question, um, there isn't much talk about local outlets. Everyone is so nationally focused, world focused that uh, it just kind of escapes the gaze of the media. Well, you know, up to that point, do you think we're in a moment where uh, and local news doesn't do as well as, as cable news? And of course, cable news is always going to cover a national or federal perspective. Um what do we lose in your opinion when we are now disconnected from our local news i mean we're losing connection with a lot of part of our lives that we actually have more influence over like Mm -hmm. you and i cannot determine a presidential election or a (laughs) congressional election but there's a lot of things that we can do locally i mean I used to cover, speaking of local journalism, I used to cover zoning meetings all the time Mm. and nobody would show up. Like Mm -hmm. there is so few, there's so little participation and, but yet there is so much that our cities, our neighborhoods, um, that's just a a big part of our lives that just kind of gets swept under the rug. I feel like, you know, we often talk about on this show, uh, my co-host who, who, uh, will be with us for the, champagne room part of the show uh pascal robert uh, often talks about the 50-year counter-revolution that happens around the time that nixon gets into office you know, the powell memo <clears throat> gets written and 
there seems to be a, a takeover of local politics by the right. School boards, you know, like you said, city councils, and all the way in places like Texas uh, state houses. Um, I feel that that disconnection that we have with any sort of local reporting, because I, I almost feel like it, it's the leftover boomer generation on, and, uh, and on the, the earlier end of the boomer generation, or maybe the only people that are even intrigued by uh, local news, um, <clears throat> unless the local news becomes a national story, i.e. a police shooting. Mm-hmm. Um so when we talk about um, a lot of the the new laws, in, in especially when uh, school boards, you know, in San Francisco, where where I'm from, the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, a school board uh, member got kicked off, but it was a big push <laughs> from the right, and there was all kind of money flowing in, and also down to DA uh, elections and even sheriff elections. So we have, you know, it's become a bit of national news in Los Angeles. They have an extremely like corrupt isn't even the right word like violent gang <laughs> gangs plural within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Um, like this is all the reasons why me personally I think that you know local news and our connection to it is important and also our our investment in uh, our own local politics. But I feel like because we're so disconnected with local news. <coughs> All we care about is politics from a federal level. So the CNNs of the world are going to cover AOC's dress at the Met Gala. But to your point, you know, us bickering about it uh, is a, a fruitless conversation when there's actually real deal things that we can do in our own communities to change the way they look. I just moved from a city that had one newspaper, a weekly newspaper that was covering an area of 400,000, Mobile, Alabama. And the default paper actually was more right wing. The the guy that runs it uh, used to work for Trent Law. Now, (laughs) he talks about his nonpartisanship. But if you look at a lot of the decisions made um, in the in the coverage, it's very right wing. And so when I started writing uh, more local news, there were people, um, there were like liberals and progressives that were like, this is amazing. Like, how, co- how, come, there, how can there be more of this? Um, but there was no, there were no local outlets to, to so there was just like a news vacuum. Um, and all there was, was like basically right-wing news. And that's is, scary. Is there, um, I mean, there's a couple of uh, ways to pass this. Uh, so obviously we can talk about local television channels and there was a little bit of talk about the Sinclair Group and its conquest of several uh, local uh, television channels, but there are, there are some local counterbalances, I guess, liberal outlets like uh, National Public Radio and, and, and things like that. But we're dealing here with newspapers and of course, in our current age, newspapers are increasingly read not as physical artifacts, but online. So could you pass a little bit the the issue with, for example, established newspapers that are uh, right-leaning, but perhaps even if they have a political slant, there is some kind of notion of journalistic professionalism and what you do as a journalist. And is that is that collapsing because... You know, journalism doesn't pay. It's not a it's not a it's not a profession that people can afford to go into. And so that professionalism that was a that accompanied journalism has gone. And then the other one is the 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 creation that you talk about of pseudo news outlets online that are very easy to do with with, um, you know, an appropriate web application where they're literally trying to trick people into thinking this is a legitimate professional news outlet when in fact it's a party political uh, apparatus. Could you could you talk about those different issues and how that fits together? So um, what you talked about at first, um, in journalism, 
you know, I went to journalism school and they talk about objectivity, which is this principle that you're supposed to, you know, not have your own opinion or that you're not supposed to be partisan, that you're supposed to, there's this sort of underlying principle of, of speaking truth to power. But um, now, of course, uh, sometimes that's been used to make the Republican Party and the Democratic Party sort of equal, and you give uh, equal time to both, which isn't necessarily supposed to be, but it's supposed to be that you're supposed to seek the truth um, <clears throat> and, and, and like fight against the power no matter who's in charge. Mm. And I feel like, um, especially over the last 20 years, we've seen um, sort of the, politi the politicization of everything and that uh, more things are becoming more partisan Democrat and more, more Republican. And I feel like that journalism, partly with the financial pressures, is, is reflecting that reality where we're starting to have more uh, Republican news and Democrat news. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I was asked this question uh, recently, like, well, isn't the threat of the Trump administration and fascism um, isn't this mean that we should like abandon these because the stakes are too high to like keep principles you know we should support with journalism that we should support the democrats because the alternative is for fascism to rise and um yeah i think that's giving it like a huge pass to democrats makes sense when do you think this kind of polarization and news started? Where does it come from? Well, I think some of it is a function of, of social media. Mm. Um, I mean, you all know, you all seen um, how hyper partisan uh, Twitter uh, and a lot mm -hmm. of social media is. And so many journalists spend like all their days, all their time on social media that mm. journalism reflects social media often more than does, you know, quote unquote, real life. Right. I, I did want to ask you about that because it feels like we're in a moment where uh, journalism is chasing social media and not the other way around, uh, which you start to see kind of in the tail end of Obama's administration where his tweets um, are becoming uh, news stories, and then it really gets ramped up uh, during the Trump administration, where he is literally um, release press releasing by, <laughs> by by his Twitter feed almost, um, which is something that maybe only ten years ago we thought would be silly to be using social media feeds as um, as press as almost formal press releases. Um, and, and I know you said social media has something to do with it, but I think even before social media becomes the behemoth that it is, uh, it feels like mainstream news is very gossip-driven at a certain point, especially as cable news starts to blow up post 9-11, uh, and you get the rise of a lot of these shows that are, um, you know, crossfire. All, all those shows, which is news as, as drama. Uh, and local reporting, even, you know, where I'm from, there's a pretty good uh, weekly. We have some good weeklies in the Bay Area that, that broke some pretty interesting stories like PG&E. You know, I learned more uh, in the weekly investigative reporting about what was going on with PG&E and the fires and why uh, than, than any other uh, news story that I saw. Um, but there is something about local reporting seems to stay true to an extent, like you said. Um, can you explain a little bit about what you were doing at the me media metric? Is that my saying it right? Uh, I was working at Genetic. Genetic. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. G G yes. 
Journatic. Journatic. When you were working with the geriatrics, can you explain a little bit about <laughs> <laughs> about what you were doing? Um, because, you know, we have a link in, in the description uh, of the show wherever you guys are listening or watching uh, to the Washington Post piece that Ryan wrote. But if you could kind of explain to us a little bit about how local journalism is being infiltrated um, by, by these right-wing companies. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the story is uh, the dire financials of the local news industry. Like, um, you know, the average print news consumer is definitely on the older side. Um, and I think that Journatic, this company that I worked for that was based in Chicago, was supposed to be an answer to some of the financial pressures because Journatic's model was, okay, what if we take local stories and offload that to poorly paid freelancers in the Philippines and other like super third world countries? Um, mm -hmm. They were doing stories about things that were happening in America. And most people have the assumption that, okay, these local stories I'm reading are being written by Bob down the street, but it turns out it was, you know, uh, these people like that were thousands of miles away. One of my kids' and uncles. part of my job was to actually change their name to seem more American. Wow. Wow. That's really fascinating because, you know, it's kind of a confluence of several different things. So we have obviously social media, uh, offering new technological opportunities to cut costs in um, journalism. You have the proletarianization of journalism in general, uh, which is being, again, facilitated by information technology, which allows you to outsource uh, work to, uh, to people. And then because there's no money in journalism, and we have this political culture that I think Jason's correct. It predates social media's explosion. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. you can try it back to the 90s where you have the proliferation of cable news, uh, which, um, you know, begins to break down the monopoly of the kind of liberal, um, centrist liberalism of the Cold War era. And so suddenly, the only it seems that the only avenue that local news can be financially viable is to cater to the political tastes of people and the only way is that it's going to be subsidized is if there are interest groups that are uh, and there always have been interest groups involved in media but interest groups who are very directly promoting particular partisan lines. And it's almost like, you know, the BreadTube, YouTube uh, news sphere as well, that, you know, you that there's a financial incentive to it, but there's also a political incentive for these right-wing groups who will who will subsidize this to go into this vacuum that you're talking about. Well, yeah, and I, I think a lot of right-wingers in general uh, made a decision years ago that um, there was a ceiling to how much their money and influence would change national politics, but they saw a huge vacuum in local news and saw that you can, the, the price of entrance was very low. And mm. with all these outlets disappearing, um, once they create these new outlets with right wing leanings, well, what else is there to compete against? So you know, at a certain point it becomes the default. And because of, because of MT, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, what, what, I, what I think is also interesting, it seems that by focusing liberals and the left to a certain degree are totally missing this because liberal and left politics, as Jason pointed out, seems to have become so national focused. And it's almost like, you know, it's like, and it's pure entertainment as opposed to having any functionality, whereas local news does have this kind of concreteness to it. And it holds people who you know accountable for that, uh, for the things that they do, as opposed to, you know, I'm mad that, you know, the Washington Post might expose some corruption of a national politician. But if that's not my congressman, you know, why do I care? And the, the parallel in left media is that there's a whole media ecosystem that's based on bashing AOC whether you like her or not but it's like AOC doesn't really matter to me 
in um, you know in Springfield because she's not my congressperson. And Jason, it's the same. Maybe it matters to MT. I don't know. Is she your congressperson? <laughs> I don't think MT is in the district. <laughs> I'm just outside of her district. It's possible that if they redistrict again, I'll be in her district, and then I'll I'll have to care a lot more. Yeah. I mean, I I, I think it's I think it's interesting that you know we're we're so emotionally attached to the idea of AOC being the end all be all of politics because we're so disconnected. I think with how the machine actually works, um, especially at the local level. Um, yeah, can can I give you an example? Please. So, um, I was living in Mobile, Alabama for two years, and in Mobile last year, there was they almost elected a dead man. I remember as that. a city councilman, mm-hmm. and they did it because these white Republicans were trying to make the city more white by annexing thousands of white people. And so what they were doing is trying to overrule a Supreme Court ruling from the 80s that allowed the city of Mobile to have more black city councilmen that they needed a, a supermajority to overrule them. Well, they were trying to trying to get past the supermajority for the annexation. Well, the city councilman who was for annexation died and the mayor tried to push his mom uh, to go in his stead anyway it was a crazy story that no one not even the locals like cared much about during this election so uh, the month before i think there was a 72 percent turnout for the presidential election Mm -hmm. for this really important local election that really would have determined um the future of the city it was like a it was like a 15 percent turnout so, I mean, this is a, a problem everywhere where people just aren't really paying attention to what's going on in their backyard. That's crazy. Well, let me ask you this, because we have, uh, I believe it's from Amazon, we have Ring, we have Nextdoor, we have Facebook, you have people snitching on their neighbors. <laughs> so... We're losing local news. Is it expressing itself in the people in these other places? Do you think there's a relationship? Yeah. Um, yeah, next door, man. It is like institutionalizing <laughs> Karenism, man. <laughs> it's professional snitching. It's professional snitching yeah. with... Uh, with a, a, a flare of, of self-awareness, like I'm not a snitch. I just see a black person in my neighborhood. Picking and people do this through I, Facebook, don't, don't they, as well? It's like, it's not just you have these apps, but right. like yeah. you have Facebook working like this. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, you know, local newspapers had their own problems. but And, and I actually used to be uh, a crime reporter in uh, Gene's backyard. I used to be a crime reporter in Jefferson City, Missouri. Oh. And... Yeah. I, you know, it was, it was a flawed thing, but, you know, we verified everything. Um, we had, we had a process that, you know, when we are writing about crimes, but without, you know, editors and without some of these local checks, I mean, you're seeing thing where people are posting on Facebook and they're just spreading crazy rumors and, uh, you know, oh, there's a suspicious black guy down the street and everybody just takes their word for it. And it creates like these moral panics. That's right. That's That's pretty depressing. I mean, we see this in other parts of the world as well, you know, like Facebook and these kind of uh, WhatsApp WhatsApp and all these things, you know, they used to organize pogroms. You mean the Philippines? Yeah, in the Philippines, they used to organize uh, massacres and things like that. So, you know, the, the problem. You know, it's not that these things are causing this thing, or these things, mm-hmm. but it's like, I guess it's like gasoline on a already burning fire of social degeneration. Because I think people can fetishize the technology too much and say, oh, it's the social media, it's the disinformation. But we have to ask a deeper question also, which is, well, why, why are people turning to Facebook 
mm-hmm. and to like random websites online for their news. Well, there's a good reason for that because they don't trust any of the institutions that exist in, uh, you know, in liberal society. So, you know, there's a push and a pull to it as well. I think the problem we might come up with with the liberal narrative, which I think your argument isn't, but I think some people might try and exploit your argument in this way, mm-hmm. is to say that, oh, well, you know, the issue is is misinformation and, you know, tricks being played on people. But surely we need to ask a deeper question about why on earth in the first place people don't trust these local why aren't people supporting local news why don't people trust national news why are people searching for alternative answers to 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 questions to uh and the answers that they want to hear i mean i wish i had some good answers for you on why people don't support it uh local news i mean you know sometimes as somebody who has worked in local news off and on for the last Oh, 20 years or, uh, or so, um, you know, thinking about that people pay uh, $100 a month in Netflix subscriptions and cable bills and all this, but they won't, you know, uh, give any money to local news. Uh, it, it hurts me a little bit, but um, I, I don't have any good answers um, for you, but I just feel like that there is still a lingering trust in the local newspaper that you see on people's porches. And I think that that's something that some of these, you know, what I call pink slime organizations are exploiting. Um, You know, again, they're trying to pull the partisanship into what wasn't there before and they're not making it explicit. You know, they're, they're like, Oh, we just care about accountability in governments. (laughs) Um, But really, it's about um, looking at government spending and be like, oh, that's bad. Well, and and also there's there's I feel like, again, back to local news. The only thing people tend to care about with local news is is big murder stories, you know, right? Like a cop shot somebody or this husband killed his wife. And for whatever reason, this is going to be the husband that kills the wife. That's going to be the big story a la. Uh, Scott Peterson and, and, and Lacey Peterson. Um, I was talking with uh, Derek Varn uh, last night on his show, and we were talking about some of the, the bigger media stories that come out of the 90s. And if I was to, you know, ask anyone, what's the biggest story out of the 90s? The trial of the century is OJ. Mm-hmm. That's a very non-political moment. But many things happen in the 90s, right? We get the fall of the Soviet Union. We get, uh, we get the, the, the war in the Balkans. That's never really brought up when we think about the 90s. It's from an American context. I can't speak for the UK. Well, one of the problems um, that doesn't really get talked about much is the decoupling of stories mm-hmm. um, to stand on their own uh, merit and attention, you know, when you had the say print edition of the New York Times, you're getting all sorts of story. It could be crime, government, it could be business stories, it could be like just mundane shit. But they were all together in the same package, and you didn't have metrics on how many page views, mm-hmm. how many retweets, stuff like that. But when you when you decouple it, of course you know, the sensationalistic crime stories are going to get the most eyeballs. And the problem is we're not subsidizing those like substantive stories that aren't quite as eye catching or has to do with like policy and other important things that may be boring for most people or just doesn't catch your attention. So that that's part of the Internet's role in destroying local journalism. And, I mean, and, and in general, like local journalism, you're just not going to get that many hits. Like there's, you know, it, by definition, you're not just you're not going to get many page views. So a lot of these companies are all chasing the same national eyeballs. And what's interesting is when you have these big time stories that do catch some sort of attention. And, you know, I'll go all the way back to the late 80s with uh, New York and, and at MTI. I'd be, I think you might vaguely remember this, but the uh, before the Central Park 
five, it was the Central Park rapist, the preppy murderer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the police chief, the head investigator, and the district attorney were quote unquote heroes. But the tactics they used in getting the preppy murderer to confess tacitly to what what he ended up you know going to jail for are the same tactics they used against you know children ostensibly uh, about a year later which they end up kind of it took years you know it took the exoneration for them and then the the movie to be made about about the whole situation on on netflix for them to catch real deal uh, fallout where Linda Fairstein, I believe, lost a position mm-hmm. and got dropped by her publisher after that thing came out. But they've used the documentary as a way to almost whitewash <laughs> their reputations as as horrible people. Um, and I actually remember following that story as as much as I could uh, back in California and. One of the things that sometimes a lot of these retellings do is, is to your point, you know, they really change the narrative and it becomes extremely pro, almost the anti-hero um, that we, we have a bit of a love affair with in this country. And, it's, and it's, a, it's a weird one because on one hand, I do believe across the board, people don't like watching the police snuff people out on body cams. I don't think anyone likes it, you know, on a bipartisan level. But on the same hand, we have a love affair uh, in this country with uh, anti-heroes. And I haven't seen too much journalism really tackle this this quandary um, because it almost seems like it would go against orthodoxy to look at it any other way than, you know, police saving the day a la you know the night stalker which was one of the biggest cases that i can remember in the 80s uh mass murder in the 80s uh here in california but the only way they found the night stalker was because they beat up his cousin the police did and uh and he was like fine it's rich you know (laughs) (laughs) but you know beating up someone to find the night stalker is going to seem like well it was justified but how many people get beat up you know, to not find anybody. And there was a beat at one point in time for, like you said, you had a crime beat and a lot of these things are gone. So we can't in Chicago, Hmm? uh, in Chicago, where I worked as a journalist for 15 years, um, the paper that I used to work for a weekly uh, alternative weekly called Chicago reader uh, did a series back. in I think in the eighties or nineties, um, about a police torturer named John Birch. Mm, now this, I vaguely remember that, yeah. Yeah, this series was amazing. Uh, it was this one dogged journalist that spent hundreds and hundreds of hours um, unearthing the story that, that the police department definitely didn't want to talk about, uh, city government didn't want to talk about. I mean, it took a lot, a lot of, of groundwork for him to do these series of stories. and. You can read a lot about it now. I mean, he was convicted. I believe he's in jail right now. But if it wasn't for this one local journalist, it probably it might not have ever come to light. Now, that came out in an era where that newspaper was doing really well. So they could invest a lot of their resources um, on this one story, on this one series. But that kind of thing doesn't really happen on a local level. You might have investigative reporting on a national level about what what's going on with uh, Trump or uh, the, uh, you know, um, Biden, you know, laptop, but nobody is doing these like local stories about corruption, uh, especially in smaller cities. I mean, you, you, you even might see, you know, uh, the New York Times do stuff about Adams, but there's so many cities where there's no investigation going on or just very little. I mean, that's is, is that is that like a fundamental problem then? Because because of the way that the market is, is it just impossible to have capitalist media that does serious investigative journalism? I mean, perhaps there was a time where it was a viable uh, way to do this, but you know, 
there doesn't see, people want entertainment but just because something is popular doesn't necessarily make it good if it was up to me i would eat chocolate chips all day but obviously you know that's not that's that's not necessarily a healthy option and it leads to you know your physical degeneration so the the problem seems to be that there just isn't um, the market forces are driving this and so yeah. it, unless you can decommodify at least some media there's going to be no incentive for anyone to lose money on media unless they're pushing a very specific political agenda like these pink slime politics people so i don't what, what is it how can we get out of this uh given the nature of market forces in the media sphere i mean just to kind of finish the point and take it home if you look at again like youtube channels and things like that you know people are driven you know it's not people talk about grifters people talk about you know people are lying about their politics but the the problem is more complicated it's that people are kind of dragged along by their audience uh, and justify being dragged along by their audience to because there's a financial incentive for it and you know they rationalize that financial incentive for whatever reason they do so the problem is this the model of capitalist media uh, because it just doesn't want to promote this kind of um, investigative journalist because there's no money in it first of all and secondly you know it could be dangerous to you on a local level to your financial interests or what have you yeah and to the point like the only candidate in the presidential in the the 2020 presidential election that made this like a key part of their platform was actually Andrew Yang. Hmm. And he uh, proposed like a local journalism fund where you would get individually money to spend on uh, on new subscriptions. And, you know, it wasn't the perfect model, but it was something because I, I do agree that in the attention economy, um, a lot of these local stories, these like meaty stories aren't going to get a lot of eyeballs. They may get like important eyeballs and, you know, the kind of eyeballs that can make change, but you're not going to get a mass audience to read a story about uh, planning and zoning or <laughs> corruption in the water department. Like in, in Mobile, the water department stole $250,000 uh, recently. Wow. And what did they spend it on? <laughs> What's that? What did they spend it on? Like designer clothes. It's ridiculous. Like they did a raid and you can see like the, all these shoe boxes everywhere. They were, they were sneaker heads. <laughs> oh man that's just no way that kind, kind of, of awesome you know you know what's funny about all this i actually uh blew the whistle on the on the place i was working at in oakland because of some things that were going on there that were you know insane and i have a, a friend at the time she was at uh, the la times and she connected me with the times reporter that was covering housing and they were like no nah, we're not going to cover this you know eventually a local person uh that's a pretty big name davy d had me on his show to, to talk about it on his radio show but uh it's surprising uh i had another friend that uh told a story about a, a judge that was sexually harassing uh his judicial assistants and had a horrible reputation for years of sexually harassing them and uh and no one wanted to cover the story when this person actually presented it to the media, they were like, hmm, this isn't really interesting to us. And and, and it wasn't just the, the sexual harassment. It was the fact that the entire uh, county court system uh, consolidated to, to cover and, and quiet the story to the point that, you know, it never it literally never got out. Hmm. Yeah. And um, similarly, uh, also in Mobile there was a judge running for city council who was having sex with prisoners. Oh, God. Jesus. All right. 
<laughs> that well, old chestnut. You know, yeah, um, he was spanking them in his office. Unreal. And there was some report. Well, I, I probably shouldn't say that one, but yeah, this guy was like a sex criminal who was a judge who was fired, and he was running, and he almost won because there is such there was no local journalism be like, hey, what? Why is this? Prisoner fucking dude, you know, running for city council. Is local journalism? Is local? Thank you. Is local journalism considered expensive? I know investigative journalism is considered expensive, but local as well. If you want it good, Mm -hmm. I mean, good answer. They, uh, I've never been paid well to do local journalism, but I. I'm here. I did it. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, they deserve the reporters and editors I know are all, you know, overworked and underpaid. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, I mean, investigative pieces definitely are more labor intensive. And you have to do the FOIAs. Um, mm. And and there's a lot of states which are making it harder. They're giving you throwing up more obstacles for FOIAs. I actually just did a FOIA for The Washington Post uh, for Alabama. And um, used to be able to email it. Now I have to send uh, a local letter uh, stamped for them to respond. So, uh, yeah, a lot of these red states are making it more difficult to do journalism. Wow. Real quick, Jason, let me ask another question. Mm-hmm. Well, what can you tell me about Patch? Do you know anything about it, Patch, the local news? Patch Adams? Uh, yeah, a, they, they've actually been around for a while. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's what's uh, called the hyper-local um, yes. network of news sites. And, and they've survived. I'm actually surprised they're still around. Um, I, I, I want to say they were funded initially by, like, Yahoo or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to do um, kind of lower-cost local journalism. But yeah, the funding model isn't really there. And because they don't have much money, they aren't able to to fund a lot of work. So a lot of it is just like regurgitation or like just quick op-eds. I really don't find that they do great, great work, Um, which is sad because the idea was good, but there's Mm -hmm. just not enough money behind it. They cover yard sales, by the way. <laughs> no, hyper, hyper local. Yacht sales are an important part of American if, if life. They can let me know where the vintage Star Wars figures are in right. like Bacoima, then I'm there. And tell me who's running for dog catcher. Super important. It is all day long. Foot the dog's yeah. ass. That's true. Well, one of my favorite things is to go around flea markets in Springfield looking for discarded Warhammer models for my eBay business. Wow. That Man, is that's real dirty. Specific. You do stuff too. That's <laughs> it. I uh, I once got a mint condition Hero Quest board game from the early nineties, and and I, I I made so much money off it. It's brilliant. If they that local journalist can help me with that stuff, <laughs> that's where we need local journalism. Can you find me a Will Clark rookie card in nice. Jim Mint condition? At the flea market in, you know, Pulaski or in Crane, Missouri. <laughs> and Joplin. Can I go to the flea market in you Joplin? You can't go to Joplin, Jason. We've discussed this before. It's too dangerous for you. That is true. It's but I have dangerous. been in Jefferson City as well. Do you know who's from Joplin, Missouri? Janice. Someone very famous. Not Janice, no. Langston, <laughs> Langston Hughes. Is he really? No. He's from New York. No, no. He, no, he came. He he. Everyone came to New York. He came to New York. Yeah. Who was the black guy from New York? He was a trans- Who was the black guy New from New York? Just I'm Pascal going to say Baldwin. Just the two of them. Only births <laughs> on record. Just the two of them. <laughs> Colored dudes from New York. Just the two of them. <laughs> from New York. That's quite beautiful. Oh, <laughs> Send that one to the tourist agency. <laughs> They're gonna love that one. <laughs> well, for those of you watching the show live, 
we are actually not live. Uh, this is all pre-recorded, so that's why we cannot respond to your comments, questions, or super chats. But please send them because we will be watching the show live as the champagne room for this show will be live. So, is that all first? that being said, is that a, yes, this is a first for us to pre-record like the show and actually have a live champagne room. Ryan was not able to join us when we usually stream. But he will be able to join us for the Champagne Room, where Pascal Robert will be with us as well. So we're going to have a full-on crew show. Um, maybe if it's okay with MT, we'll take calls. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'll see how I feel. See how she feels. <laughs> uh, Are you guys going to wear the exact same thing? I will, if you will. Uh, no, I'm not, because I want to be that kind of asshole. Sure thing. Ah. <laughs> uh. I actually thought about it literally as I hit go live. I'm being totally serious. And I was like, I'm not going to wear the same thing. I'm okay. sitting in this interview like, I hope they wear the same clothes. <laughs> Great. I, I I have clothes. You, you want to hear something even dumber? Hmm. Right when I hang up with you guys, I have another show to do. Changing the shirt again. Are you really? Yep. What type of Western? Because they would see it back to back days. They'd be like, oh, Jason doesn't change his shirt. And they, would, and, and they would shame you. They would, they would shirt shame me. Wardrobe change. Wardrobe change. I'm like Sade in the early 2000s. But it's going to be an... Are you going to... Go ahead, Ryan. Sorry. Oh, I was going to ask if you're going to bring your axe for that one. <laughs> <laughs> his no, axe no. had like... His axe had like a shield over it or something. It you know like what's a... funny? I actually... The only weapon I do own is a machete. Like, no bullshit. My dad gave me a machete. Um, my dad, his wife had passed, and, and they gave me this car. And uh, there was a machete in the back of it. And, you know, as he's cleaning it out, he's like, here. <laughs> and I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? He said, niggas is crazy. And he just walked away. Yeah. <laughs> All right. He okay. knew the terrain of battle. You need to get it engraved. His dad knew the terrain of battle. <laughs> And he knows that the machete, because people people think they they're gonna be running around with guns and stuff. Look, no, quick, yeah, quick action, quick, like, quick mm -hmm. Roman short sword in the stomach. <laughs> like you think about like what what situation am I gonna be? And I get cut off, and I'm just gonna pull out a machete, and stare at somebody with it in my hand like this. Works for fan drivers. Well, if you go to Scandinavia, you could kill like a hundred people with it. So. <laughs> Look at that, <laughs> or Japan. Like, Apparently. <laughs> oh, too soon. Too soon. Sorry. RIP to the real one. Yeah, but we do. I mean, the machete is now the symbol of the Mau Mau Hour. So that's true. That it is. So I'm excited for the. Are we going? Is the Mau Mau going to happen while we're gone? It's, no, it's happening the week after. Okay. Well, then I'll shut up now. Thank you very much, Ryan, for joining us. If you guys want to hear more be a part of the conversation we will answer all of your questions comments live in the champagne room uh hopefully by the time this show airs gene bajlan will have cut the clip of our breakdown of hatchet man in mcdonald's what to do and also what a keeper looks like because the young lady that stands in front of her boyfriend while hatchet man is going crazy we discussed this though. We discussed yeah. this off. Sarah Bajalan disagrees very heavily with, <laughs> with the notion that 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 woman felt any threat whatsoever. When you're 16 years old and there's a big buff black dude running around with a hatchet, smashing cell phones and slapping the fire out of your friends, I think you don't know what you're doing at that point. And everyone probably had a bowel movement. And on that note, oh, wow. Don't you think an Oreo McFlurry could have diffused the situation? <laughs> Those are awesome. McFlurries. I think you're right. Yeah, it makes everyone happy. Bringing the world together. I think if you know what, we have to send Ryan the video because he has to. You know what, Ryan? In the champagne room, mm -hmm. we're going to open the champagne room with the video so you can see and you can break it down yourself <laughs> for the flaws in the young people's game of where they went wrong in the situation. They went mm. wrong many places. I'm ready. Uh, this sounds like local journalism to me. This, there we go. Is, you know yeah. what? 
And then we're going to hold the screenshot because there is a dude. It Someone screenshotted it, and I have to show you guys. There's a dude who's watching this thing that looks like he just traveled in time because he's a farmer. And this is supposed <laughs> to be in downtown New York. And he's, got, he's like an old black man in overalls and some farmer shit on. Why are you sharecropping in Brooklyn? What is going on? I was like, what kind of urban farm did this dude just walk out of? Probably one of MT's friends. Right, right. It's true. Green revolution. Right. It's a green revolution. Get you some veggies. Well, it looks like John Henry just stepped out of a time machine, so we're going to have to comment on that as well. But uh, thank you very much. Ryan, and uh, we will see you guys in the champagne room. And we are MT out.